All right, well, the book of Joel. Now, we don't know much about him. The book of Joel captures a, a one-year time span in Israel. And there was something very, very interesting that happened uh, during that time. Um, Joel, it's, it's undetermined really when he actually lived. I don't really know. They can't really nail that down. There's a lot of conjecture as to the dates and that sort of thing. But the important thing is what we do know about Joel is that he was a prophet. And he came on the scene basically at a time when Israel had been completely and totally devastated by uh, the locusts, a swarm of locusts. And you're thinking, okay, what is that all about? Well, if you can imagine what we know uh, is that the whole entire nation of Israel, their crops and everything were completely devastated and eaten and completely gone. What does that do? Well, there goes your food supply. Instant famine within a couple of days. And it's interesting because this happened to Israel in a time where there was plenty, in a time when there were, you know, there, there was no enemies at their borders. Uh, they were experiencing prosperity. And, and what that did over time is it kind of took their attention away from and their dependence upon the Lord. It minimized that and it kind of drew them away from the Lord in a way where they weren't even gathering anymore. They were not even assembling to hear the Lord, to hear the word being preached, to, to experience fellowship with one another. All of a sudden, it became more important to them in their prosperity. That's where their focus and their eyes had gone to. And so the Lord said, hey, kids, remember me? I love you too much to let you continue down this road. So to get your attention, I'm going to send an army. And that's what this army of locusts is actually personified as, a, an actual army that is so powerful and you can't fight against it. How do you fight against a swarm of locusts coming your way? This is what happened in the nation. The swarm of locusts came in and completely and totally devastated uh, the nation. In fact, you'll see there in chapter one of Joel, if you're there, Joel chapter one, verse four, we read what the chewing locust left the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. So there it is. There was nothing left. What the flying locust left, the crawling one ate. And what the crawling one left, the consuming one ate. And so on and so it goes to the point where verse 7, it says... He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Even the bark of the trees was eaten, gone. This is important because it tells us the actual utter devastation that this nation experienced. Can you imagine all the time and effort I don't know how many farmers or ranchers we have in the group, but as you can imagine, it's a, a long process. You don't just throw seeds in the ground and you get them back the next day. It's not a microwave society back in these days. This took time, effort, uh, strenuous uh, 
um, endeavor to grow crops. And can you imagine, and all here comes this beautiful crop of plenty, and just before harvest, an enemy comes in that you have no defense against. Nothing you can do. All you can do is stand there in awe and see all of your hard work go down the tubes, destroyed. Put yourself there. Put yourself there for a moment. As I mentioned earlier, this enemy is personified, this, these locusts, this swarm of locusts that comes in and the devastation it brings, it's personified as a great army. Now look there in chapter 2. We'll fast forward a little bit. Chapter 2, we'll start there in verse 2. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come great and strong the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Pay attention to everything that you're hearing right now, because I'm going to bring to light something that you're going to be blown away about in a minute. Verse 3, a fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap. Like the noise of a, uh, of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array, before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. That's... Amazing poetry, but it wasn't just poetry. This is a realistic event that took place. This is what the people experienced. It says there they look up and their faces are drained with color because they're there's hopeless. There's no hope. How do you defend against them? In that day especially, ancient peoples were terrified of the swarming locust because they knew the devastation that they would bring to their country. It terrified them. Verse 7. Now watch this. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, in other words, you can swing a sword, you can shoot arrows at them, but not, weapons are useless against them. They are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. Crazy. Put yourself there. The mind's eye can go crazy by putting ourselves in that event. Can you imagine? Here comes the swarm. After all you've done, the work, the labor, the plowing, the sowing, the nurturing of the crops and the plants and, and all those sorts of things, and here comes this harvest, and it's there, and then you see what all people in those days were terrified of. You see this army coming your way, and guess what? Your face is drained of color. You panic. Hopeless. What can I do? What can I do? I'm a farmer, and I'm in these days. Uh, nothing. 
What you can do is stand there and watch your crops get devastated. That's what you can do. Hopeless, right? Terrifying. All that hard work, gone. And then you have the despair that would follow. Famine, lack of food. This is what we're talking about here. Now, this is interesting because it says here that everyone marches in formation, describing these locusts. They do not break ranks, and they don't push one another. It's cool because Proverbs chapter 30, this may sound familiar. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27 says this. The locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. The locusts have no leader, but yet they automatically fall into formation as if an army would without a general. They just know their mission ahead of them. Now, this is cool because I did a little bit of research. I love, if we're reading about locusts, I want to know more about them. What, is the, what are these things? And a couple of things that I had found was this. During my research, I found this article. Here's the headline. Locusts are a plague of biblical scope in 2020. Why? And what are they exactly? Of course, that caught my eye, so I had to continue reading. Titanic swarms of desert locusts resembling dark storm clouds are descending ravenously on the Horn of Africa. They're moving through croplands and flattening farms in a devastating Savo, experts are calling, an unprecedented threat to food security. On the ground, sustenance planners can do nothing but watch. We just read that. Staring up with horror and at their fields in dismay. What is a locust? There can be a lot of confusion about what exactly a locust is. To the average eye, it's easy to mix up the critters with crickets and other grasshoppers. The simple answer, though, explains Rick Overson. He is from Arizona State University Global Locust Initiative. <laughs> there are guys who study this stuff, and we chuckle, but it's a real problem. It is a real problem. It's hitting uh, Africa basically as we speak. June and July were the worst months hit in 70 years. Kenya, devastated. Already countries that were already teetering and wobbling, barely able, and now you hit them with coronavirus, and then you hit them with these locusts that are coming through the, the region. Rick Overson, uh, Arizona State uh, University Global Locust Initiative, is that locusts are a very special kind of grasshopper. As Overton explains, there are hundreds of species of grasshoppers. But only a small handful of those are what we consider locust. Interesting. That raises a question. What makes a locust a locust? According to Overton, it comes down to a superpower possessed by locusts that enable them to go through a remarkable switch in development. Most of the time, locust exists in the grasshopper phase. And that they have quotes around that, the grasshopper phase. They lead solitary lives. They're green and pretty unremarkable. But the timing of this varies, and the, sh the shifts are pretty irregular. But for years, locusts can live like this, alone, just biding their time. But listen to this. But when the environmental conditions are right, usually when there's a lot of rainfall or moisture, something dramatic happens. 
they increase in numbers. And as they do, they sense one another around them, says Overton. This is what biologists called gregarious phase of the locust. Now listen to this. The creatures undergo a remarkable transformation. They change their physiology, their brain changes, their coloration changes, their body size changes, Over Overton says. Instead of repelling one another, they become attracted to one, on one another. And if these conditions persist in environment, they start to march together in coordinated formations across the landscape which is what we're seeing in Eastern Africa. That was NPR. <laughs> that was an article that NPR ran. And to my knowledge, I don't think NPR is really forward thinking in Bible studies, if I'm not mistaken. But I couldn't pass up the headline. We just read what they said in the Bible. Don't you love it when the Bible kind of like confirms what we're reading in headlines today? Fascinating, fascinating. This devastation that hits, these, uh, this ultimate devastation that hit the land with complete and utter helplessness and hopelessness of the people. God gives a promise, though. And perhaps this is one of the most awesome promises in God's word. I don't know how you categorize promises of the Lord, because they're all amazing, if you ask me. But I think certain promises hit us at certain times in our lives and certain times of where we're at in a special way. And I think this is one of them. If we continue on in the chapter, you get down to verse 25 of chapter 2, and this is what the Lord says. So, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. I love this passage. I'll restore to you the years that the, the swarming locust came in and destroyed and has eaten. The crawling locust the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God. And there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. That's his promise. He says, hey, I sent the army. This wasn't happenstance. This wasn't something that just happened on its own. I sent them. I had to because you were forgetting about me. God says, hey, kids, if you will, Israel, listen, you were starting to get your eyes on the prosperity and all the goods and all this stuff, and, and you were kind of drifting away from me. And that was going to become dangerous to you. So to wake you up, I sent this army. But he says, check it out. But listen, I love you so much, too, that I'll restore everything, the years that the locust has consumed. I'll restore all that back to you. Just a couple of things, though, that I need you to do. What are those? Well, as we look back, go back with me, and we'll cover just a couple of those things. Back at the beginning of the chapter, actually, we'll go to verse 12. A couple of things I want you to do, the Lord says. 
They were to, verse 12, now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. Okay, repent, confess, turn back to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And he says, so rent your heart and not your garments. That was a custom of the day. To show such deep and utter sorrow, they would rent and tear their clothing. To show, it was an outward showing uh, to other people around them. If you had torn clothes and, and ripped clothes and renting your clothes and your garments, that was an outward sign of the inner deep sorrow that you were experiencing. And it told everyone, whoa, they are hurting. But what does God say? He says, don't rent your clothes. Rent your heart. Don't, don't do an outward thing. I don't care about that. I, I care about what you're, what's going on in your heart. Rent your heart. Turn to me. Rent your heart, not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Continuing on in the verse, he's slow to anger and of great kindness our Lord is. He relents from doing harm. He's long-suffering, you guys. The enemy wants to trick the world, and he wants to trick us by giving us this image that God is just up there, just can't wait to judge us. He just can't wait to bring judgment down upon us. That's what the enemy wants us to think God is. And it says right here, he relents. He, he's long-suffering. He doesn't want to bring that judgment. He, in fact, he relents from it, he says. And we do understand in Bible days and, and stories that we study, yes, judgment does come sometimes. It seems clear that it, it obviously came in this moment, but it was because the Lord loved them so much, he brought them to kind of shake them up and wake them up, if you will. So that's what they were doing. Repent, turn. It's a, it's a military word. It's almost like an about face. Instead of going one direction, about face. You guys, military, you remember it was a 180, and we're going the other way in our marching columns and our formations. Repenting, turning away from that, renting our hearts, not our garments, turning to the Lord, for he relents from doing us harm. Second thing, jump down to verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a feast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out of his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach. That the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? What does it say there? Blow the trumpet. The trumpet was blown for two reasons in the Old Testament. One, to uh, let the armies know what to do in battle. But two, what we're seeing right here is to assemble the people. When you heard the trumpet, it was to, hey, guys, we got to go. You would gather and you would assemble and you would go to the temple or, or the tabernacle or whatever have you, and you would gather to, to, uh, to gather together to hear the word of the Lord. 
to perhaps hear a reading of the word to the, the people. It's interesting. The trumpet's blown, and it says what? Gather. It says to assemble. And that's what we're doing here today. We're doing that right now. We're assembling, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to be together. It's a good thing for us to have fellowship. It's a good thing for us to gather and hear the word and lift up song and worship to our God who is so gracious and good to us. Amen? And finally, the last por uh, portion of that says, Why should the nations rule over them? It says, Lord, don't give your heritage a reproach. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? Lord, if you don't do it for us, do it for your own namesake. Don't let the other heathen nations rule over us and say, ha, their God wasn't powerful enough to, to heal their land and to deliver them. Don't let them do that, Lord. No. And finally, moving on, verse 20. He says, but I will remove far from you the northern army. And I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up and with his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. But it says, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done marvelous things. The Lord has done marvelous things. And that verse is a past tense. The promise would come true. The, the promise would be delivered. But what does it say there? It says the Lord has done marvelous things. In other words, past tense, meaning we are to rejoice in the Lord. They were to rejoice in the Lord as if the restoration had already happened. Do you guys understand that? That's important. It's key because that's how we need to live our lives. Because here's the trap. The trap is the world would say, the enemy would say, uh, kind of a Thomas mentality. Well, I'll believe it when I see it. Anyone heard that? That's how the world thinks. And the Lord would say, believe it, and then you'll see it. Believe it, and then you'll see it. It's faith, you guys. The point is this, and we'll close with a song in a moment. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. This was about a year span that happened to a nation centuries ago with an army that was sent from God to wake up a nation to get their eyes back focused on what is true and what is real, and that's the Lord. And we see those armies even still today, as we read an article written earlier this year. Those problems still exist. The locust is still around. And we look at our lives and we go, man, you know what? I can identify with that. I feel like, wow, this has been a crazy year for me. What has the locust come in and, and destroyed out of your life this year? 
that, that gnawing, chewing locust. You've put all your time and your effort and, and blood, sweat, and tears and, and focus into these things or that, this or that, a relationship, um, family, a job, whatever the case may be, you fill in that blank, but you've put that in and somehow, some way, the enemy, this army, has come in and just devastated all of that. And you stood there helpless, hopeless, out of your control. Perhaps something there was nothing you could do about it. Maybe it wasn't this year. Maybe it was last year. Maybe it's been several years. And that devastation is something that you feel that's very real today. My encouragement for you right now is this is a promise. This is a promise that the Lord gives. And I don't know about you, but I'm pretty confident that our Lord fulfills his promises. What does he want us to do? He wants us to get our focus back on him, not the things of this world, the material stuff, not all of that, but focus ourselves back on him. If it's getting back to ground zero and back to the basics, then Lord, get me there. Let my focus be on you solely. I rent my heart to you, Lord. I open up. I confess whatever it is in my life that's you're trying to get my attention. And if that's what it takes, then praise you. And then on top of that, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to give you honor and praise because I know the promise. What does it say? I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. I'm going to give you back everything that was taken, and I'm going to do a reset, the Lord would say. But it's up to me to get to that point where I confess to the Lord, I get back to basics, and then I rent my heart. But then what's important, and listen to this, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because I'm going to pretend like that already happened. The restoration's already happened. And you're saying, well, that hasn't happened yet, though. I know. Perhaps it hasn't. But you guys, this is where faith comes in. This is where faith comes in. This is where we say, okay, I haven't seen it, but I believe it. And we step out, and guess what? The Lord's promise is there. That's what faith is all about. You and I have got to exercise our faith muscle in this life. We have to, because I've told you before, we've studied this before, faith is the language of eternity. And we have to understand the idea and the concept of faith right now. And this is where that moment is. Your years have been devastated, perhaps this one, perhaps last year, years ongoing. There's been things that the locust has come in and, and devastated. And you say, you know what, Lord, I don't understand it. But I trust you. I love you. I rent my heart. I give it to you. And I'm going to praise you because you're so marvelous. I'm going to give you honor and glory and praise you because you've made me a promise. You're going to restore all that that was destroyed. And you're going to give that back to me. You're going to reset the years. And I'm going to praise you because maybe it hasn't happened physically yet, but I know it will because this is a promise. If that's you today, take heart. Be encouraged, you guys. The Lord loves you beyond your wildest imaginations, and he wants to bless you. He wants to pour out his blessing upon you. He's just waiting to do that. And we've said it before. We just have to be in the right spot. We have to be in the right place, and this is where we begin that. Amen? I'll restore to you. I'll bring it all back. I'll give you a big, giant reset. 
I like that reset button. When things are going awry and it's not working, hit the reset button, get you back. That's where we need to be. That's our focus this morning. Be encouraged, you guys. The Lord loves you.